today we are here in week three of the Story of Justice series, where we are finally setting course into the narrative of Scripture itself. You see, over the past two weeks, we kind of had a, a prologue and a setup for even getting into the Bible itself. And this week, here we are setting off. Back in 2009, Simon Sinek rose to prominence as a voice within kind of the business leadership, business management scene when his uh, 2009 TED Talk entitled Start With Why went viral. went on to become the second most watched TED Talk of all time and now has been viewed hundreds of millions of times. He has written more blogs, books, and interviews than I cared to go through and count. But in that TED Talk that turned into later a book and now a whole career that he's built for himself, he, he lays out that very few people or companies or leaders can honestly clearly articulate the why they do what they do and the why behind how they do it. By why, he means the underlying purpose, the cause or belief underneath the business that you work in, the work that you do. Why does your company exist? Why do you get out of bed every morning? And why should anyone care? In preparing for this week, Simon Sinek's talk came to mind. You see, over these past few months, many within our nation have begun to see and in some cases for the very first time begun to see, the deep injustices and ongoing impacts of, of racism within our country. And from that awakening, a passion for justice, which rushes into the how and what of justice, but in many cases runs right past the first question of why in the first place. I've seen this regularly in conversations with many of you within our community of, of, of collective, or even um, as I'm scrolling through my timeline, or even conversations with uh, Pastor Lorenzo and Pastor Isaac, a, a focus on what is justice and how do we accomplish this work? How should we respond to these evils over there or over here? How do we deal with this issue of privilege? What about this or how about that? And these are all great, good questions, which we should wrestle with. And my hope is in the coming weeks, we will address. But in line with Simon Sinek's work on starting with why, this morning, unapologetically, I'm asking us to push pause on the what and how of justice, and just to consider the question of why. Why should we care for the poor and vulnerable? Why should we seek to free slaves and fight for um, equal working conditions of people around the world? Why should we care about varying levels of treatment and mistreatment or privilege and poverty within society? Why should we care about working toward an equal and just society? It's a weighty question. And it's one that you cannot answer like my, my three-year-old Emma all, almost always does whenever I ask her the why behind something. She just says, just because. You can't give a just because to something like this. You see, the perspective that, ju that justice is a fundamental necessity that you and I owe to humanity is not normal within human history. Throughout history and even around the world today, the notion that everyone is equal and worthy of just treatment accordingly is not a consistent belief. Now, I'm not saying that any of us are wrong in calling for justice. I'm just saying that we need a better argument than just because. And like Tom Holland, not Spider-Man Tom Holland, but the uh, historian Tom Holland showed us last week, if you believe that all humans are equal and deserving of just treatment, you have the Bible to thank for that. 
Now, you may not hold on to a lick of anything else that Scripture holds, but if you, over these past few months, have held up a call for justice, that every single person is equal, that all men were created equal, regardless of how that may be applied or misapplied, if you believe that all people are created equal, you have Genesis 1 to thank for that. And if you're angry about why this world is not just and right, Genesis 3 through 11 answers you some answers for that. And so today we're looking at Genesis 1 through 11, what is really the first movement of the narrative of the story of justice. Now, when we get through Genesis 1 through 11 and some of the things I'm going to talk about today, many people want to go to their historical questions or their scientific questions, and these are awesome. It's one of the reasons this is some of my favorite um, segments of the story of Scripture. And so bring those at the Q&A today on Instagram. I would, I'm loving those. But what I want to do today is I want to just move through the narrative of Genesis 1 through 11, asking these questions of how does this pertain to the issues of justice, to the issues of what it means to be human. And, and again, just as I set up this series, normally we go one book at a time. We've been going through Mark earlier this year. We've gone through First Peter, a collective in our history. We've gone through things like Hebrews, uh, normally going through one book at a time. What we're going to be doing for this series is going through whole segments of chapters and even a series of books at a time in a hope to carry the narrative movement of how these things are all connected with one another. And so I'm just simply asking you, stay committed to the reading plan on our website. We post it on social media each week. Keep an eye out for it. Read over what you can. Uh, we're even going to be trying for the, a couple of weeks having a shorter version and then maybe a longer kind of segment of reading, depending on what you're able to do. Um, so just please stay committed to that because um, you're going to get out of Sundays what we put in Monday to Saturday. But let's pray and then let's get into the story. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the goodness that is uh, Sundays I and mean, the opportunity for us to gather in song, in prayer, and around your word, and through the meal. God, we lament uh, the absence of being together, uh, but even these little moments like this where we're taking one step in the direction of, of what, what our hearts long for, um, we're just grateful for it. And so we pray that uh, as we sit down and we study the story of Genesis 1 through 11, that today the why of justice might ring within our hearts and that we might move out into the what and how in the coming weeks with a stronger conviction that cannot be shaken as we see it within your word. Meet with us, please. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, Genesis 1.1. I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're going to summarize it. Genesis 1.1 begins with, in the beginning, God creating the heavens and the earth. And in verse 2, it describes the earth as being without form and void. Tohu abohu is the Hebrew, or formless and unfilled. Lock that away, formless and unfilled. And it talks about that this unformed and unfilled earth, it was covered with waters, and that the Spirit of the Lord moved over the waters, and then God began to speak and order certain things to come into creation. The first three days were Him forming the unformed world. He was calling there to be light formed in order to part from darkness, of land separated from the waters and the sky from the land. It was a work, the first three days, of forming, forming, and ordering. The next three days was God addressing the void, the unfilled nature of earth. As those three days, he filled and filled and filled. We got plants, we got fish, we got birds, we got animals. 
And after each of these six days, God said and spoke, it is good over all of it. The portrait of these seven days and this portrait of a God coming in and walking into his creation, calling out and ordering, portrays the creator God like a king walking into his palace, putting everything into order. Specifically, that seven-day period would be the normal um, inauguration walk-in of a king. It's a big party in the time of the Bible. All of this imagery is being pulled together to portray the creator God as walking into a watery, wild, and waste world and forming it and filling it. And then on day six, uh, Genesis 1, 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, male and female, the image of God, and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so let's stop here. Here is the big question of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28. What does it mean for humans to be the image of God? In the Hebrew that Genesis was written in, the word for image is this word tselem. It is the word for an image. It's also the word for a statue. It's also the image for an idol that someone might make. And there's so many connections within the image of God, but we're going to sort of bring it in on the main one that's at work here. Because in the ancient Near East, which was the neighboring age of when Genesis would have been written in these times, that the language of image of God was actually quite common. They're not inventing an idea necessarily here. You see, in the ancient Near East, the title for kings was the image of God. All the kings that were up there in their palaces, you know, people hanging grapes over their head while they sat with people fanning them and they had ice being brought down the mountains, those people up there who their rule and reign, those were the image of God. They were the royal representatives of a particular God. If you go back to your middle school or maybe elementary school days, you might remember hearing about the Pharaoh Tutankhamun, whose name literally means the living image of Amun. He's the living image of God. And this is not just in Egypt, but this is in Sumerian and Babylonian and um, um, Assyrian, all these writings that the image of God was used to talk about royal representatives that were the physical embodiment of some spiritual being at work in the world. Now, it might have been a pagan god or whatever, but that was the image. Now, the image of God, that person was seen as being sacred. You honored that king. You gave all that you had for that king. You respected them. You protected them. And to disrespect that king was to disrespect whoever the god was that that king represented. You could get the gods against you if you got their rep royal representative on the bad um, side of you. Now, here's the revolutionary claim of Genesis 1. Everyone is that image of God, and not of just some random pagan spiritual being God, but the creator God. Every single person has that level of worth and value and sacredness, irrespective, as we see in here, of their gender, 
of their ethnicity as Adam and Eve are the, the leading formation to all of humanity is the portrait that the Bible gives. That Regardless of your economic mobility or your cognitive ability, your relational intelligence or your age, you are the image of God. You see, the image of God is not some quality that we have. It is by very nature what human beings are. Mark Cortez, who has the coolest job title of all time, he is a theological anthropologist. That means he studies humanity through the lens of theology. He says this, the image of God is the declaration that God intended to create humanity to be the physical means through which he would manifest his own divine presence and rule into the world. This whole theme is the basis of justice. It's why later in Genesis uh, chapter 9, verse 6, that the, to, to, to mistreat an image bearer is to mistreat God himself, their creator. It's the basis for retributive justice in Genesis 9. Those who kill an image bearer, who destroy an image bearer, they themselves will be destroyed. You see, it is not a light thing. And, and again, to go back to you know, not, our not Spider-Man time, to mistreat an image bearer, this, this idea that every single human being is the image of God is an utterly unique declaration against the backdrop of not just uh, the ancient Near Eastern creation accounts that portrayed human beings as being these little muckballs that were made to be slaves of the gods pulled from the corpse of the other gods that the other gods had killed. It wasn't in line with Greek or Roman thought. Everybody wants to celebrate that the, the Greeks had democracy, yeah, for the top 10%. Aristotle wrote how only those with rational thought could truly be seen as being the equal, the rulers, the image of God. But slaves were not rational, and therefore he justified slavery. You see, throughout history, it has not been common to understand everyone as being equal, to have a sacred, inherent right behind that equality. You see, even today, six out of 10 Americans reject that human life is sacred or has unconditional intrinsic worth. This is what leads to our confusion around the issues of justice, is on one hand, we know that we are equal in some sense, but we don't understand or have a basis for believing that. And so it leads to all sorts of fallout. And so Genesis 1, like I just said, establishes the foundation, the why of justice. Because every single human being is the image of God, made with inherent dignity, worth, value, and sacredness. That each human, like Martin Buber, the Jewish theologian, as he put it, that human beings, we are prone to see each other as its, but the biblical declaration is that you and I are thous. We are incredible beings that God has made. And part of that royal status of being in the image of God is the royal job description. And take notes here. If you're trying to understand the image of God, image of God is this royal representative, and it comes with a job description. Note, note this here. What is the job description of the image of God? It's first that they fill, that they be fruitful, they multiply and fill the earth as it said. That in being the image of God, they do what God did those other six days. They, like God, filled the world, are called to be a royal representative in continuing his filling work with more image bearers, with more families, with businesses and culture and music and art and cities. It is the idea that the world would be filled with more goodness. It's this idea of a generational application of the image of God, of creating things that we hand down to the next generation of goodness 
and the royal representative rule. So the first thing is that we fill or, or the generational application. The second one is that we form the world. Like it says, to let them rule and take possession of, to subdue and have a dominion. It's the world for rule. The idea is that human beings will cultivate and harness and order creation like God himself ordered creation in days one through three. That we will bring out of the goodness of God's creation more order. We will bring forth more creation. The image of subduing and dominion is not exploitation, but respect and protection. It's the image of a gardener or a shepherd of a farm or a cook. To form the world is to take uh, uh, the farming work of oats and turning it into oat milk and to take uh, coffee beans and to distill that and then press that through hot steam and bring together this thing called an oat milk latte. This is the forming vocation that humans were made for. And everyone said, amen. But it goes beyond that. The forming work is about civilization. It's about government. It's about ordering the world rightly. You could say that subdued dominion forming vocation is about the social or systemic application of the image of God. It is a further ordering of God's good world. So, deep breath, in summary, the image of God is that every single human being has a sacredness and inherent worth as a royal representative of the creator God. And that with that royal status, we move into the world forming and filling it with generational application and social applications. But with this status and commissioning, there exists a possibility. Genesis 2, verse 15 through 17 says, And the Lord God took the man, and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You can surely eat of any tree in the garden, including the tree of life that gets detailed earlier in chapter 2. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the question that sits before Adam and Eve here in the garden between all of humanity is this. Will humanity be the divinely ordained kings and queens of creation, trusting and working with the creator who clearly knows how to order and fill the world? Or will they become tyrants? Will they form and fill the world like God does? Or um, will they take on a self-centered focus? Will they uh, focus they're forming and filling in light of who God is with as Psalm 145 says, grace and compassion and goodness and faithfulness and love and generosity. Will they live up to their status as the image of God or will they usurp the throne, selfishly take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is representative of humans seizing a self-serving redescription of right and wrong as it suits them. And in doing so, will they fracture the image of God? Because in not receiving God's picture of good and evil, they take their own and their ability to image God is fractured. It's the question before Adam and Eve. It's the question before every single character in the story of scripture. And it's the question before every single human image bearer, you and me. What have you done or what will you do with this divine gift and responsibility, this royal status that is your humanity? That's the question. What does Genesis 3 do for us? Well, we'll summarize it uh, so we can keep going through. But most of you know at some level the story, that at some point we have a, a talking serpent that shows up, and he seems to be hanging around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he comes to the woman, and he begins to ask questions about what did God really say that you should not eat of the tree? And they go back and forth, and the woman is deceased as she sees that the, the, the tree, the fruit, 
of naming for herself good and evil, right and wrong, is pleasurable to the eyes. And so she takes and she eats. She gives to the man who he himself eats. The whole question that he postures is that, that the serpent that is, 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 is that if they were to take and eat from this, that they will become not just the images of God, but they will become like God. Why be the image when you can be the real thing? And so the woman, they take, and then they realize upon eating that they are naked. And so they, they sew fig leaves together, and they make loincloths. Then in Genesis 3, it depicts God as walking through the garden, asking the question, little humans, Adam and Eve, where are you? What happened? And he comes to them, and, and what happens is a three-part blame game. God comes to the man. The man blames the woman. She gave it to me. The woman you gave me gave it to me. And he goes to the woman, what, what happened? And she points ahead to the serpent. And then God goes into then the implications on, on humanity and on the serpent. This, this cursed work that now has happened. Because again, remember, humanity is the royal representatives of the earth. As they go, so goes all of creation. And so they drag creation into death and chaos with them. That the ground is now cursed and it now brings up thorns. That the work of raising up children, of filling the earth, is now also painful toil. It all is cursed and broken. But in the midst of that fallout, God promises that from the woman will be one day this serpent snake crusher. This one promised human will, who will deal with the serpent and allow for humanity to return to the garden, as it were. Now, Genesis 3, what we've just gone over here, is what's often referred to as the fall. Rightly so. It depicts humanity's fall from the good ideal down into death, chaos, decay, pandemics, and disorder through humans in their rejection of God and his commands as they try to become kings themselves. Now, in the reading today, we went all the way from 3 to chapter 11. And this, has become, I have, this is because I have become exceedingly convinced that this narrative all the way to chapter 11 is the continuation of that fall. It does not stop in chapter 3. You see, over these coming chapters of 4, 5, 6, 7, and onward, we watch as humanity becomes like a funhouse mirror image of God, distorted and distorted in the ways that they embrace their royal representative, their, their royal status. They bring a distorted forming and filling of the world. 4 through 11 traces the impact of that broken filling, the generational impacts of sin and injustice and evil, and the uh, uh, systemic or social, the forming aspects, the filling and the forming, the generational and the social. Now, how does this play out? How do you know Ryan's not just pulling this out? Well, if you read 4, which was one of the main big chapters that I had everyone read this week, you watch the story of Cain and Abel unfold where Cain, like his parents, like mom and dad, like Adam and Eve, is taken aside by an evil sin that's depicted like a beast that wants to devour him, just like the serpent in the tree. And what happens is it, it overtakes him and he kills his brother. Cain, like mom and dad, were exiled from the garden when the land was cursed. Cain himself finds the land being cursed and he's exiled out from the garden you see it's gone from individual mom and dad to generational. And then what happens is it moves down, Cain leaves, and he builds a city, a city called Enoch, with a few generations of people forming and filling both good, where you've got um, one of the guy's names is Tubal Cain, which is just awesome. 
But uh, in chapter four, you can read, they, you have the good, some good forming that's happening where they have, um, there's um, those who dwell in tents and they have livestock. So there's a forming work that's going on there. There's the forger of instruments of bronze and iron and the lyre and the pipe. It's talking about music. So you have good forming work, but then in the continuation of the generation, we come to Cain's great grandson, Lamech. Now Lamech, this is worth noting, his name in Hebrew is the word king just with the letters backwards and all jumbled up. The idea being that the good king, the royal representatives that, that Adam and Eve, that all humanity was meant to be, Lamech is this twisted, perverted king. It's making the image that much more strong before us, for those that were reading in, in Hebrew originally. And what happens? How is he a perverted king? Well, we just read in verses 23 through 24, he uh, perverts and corrupts that marriage portrait of the garden of one man and one woman together in, in chapter two, now with multiple wives. And it seems that the relationship is one of subjugation. He boasts in how he not only has continued in his grandfather's violence, but multiplied it by 77 fold. You see, generations have continued and they've rolled through. In chapter five, we find that it's gone from individual sin to generational, handing it down to now social, systemic, as those families take power, and where it leads us to is chapter six, where the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then you jump down to verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight as it was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. The, the repeated refrain of Genesis 1, that God saw that it was good, is now replaced with God saw that it was corrupt. Do you see the whole world has been turned over as sin and evil has moved from just individuals to families and generations and then to societies and cities like Enoch is the name of that city. And so Genesis is portraying how sin and evil corrupts and works through the world. And sometimes we miss it because we stop at Genesis 3 and we get to the snake crusher and we skip ahead to the New Testament. Where's that Jesus guy? And, and no, the whole point is this is a narrative story. Keep reading and you'll watch how sin is far more dastardly and, 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 and pervious within society and within our families, within our bones. It's not just me making a decision. It's me being taught by mom and dad how to make those decisions. And society is being formed for me to make decisions that I don't even know I'm making until every decision of my heart is always evil continually, as it says. You see, these chapters portray how humanity's sin has infected the forming and filling responsibility. They're filling the world with not good royal representative image bearers, but these shattered image bearers who are bringing out destruction and sin and injustice. They're forming the world like they do as they continue to pull from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. They're ordering the world based off my perception of wrong and right over and against what you might say as wrong and so Genesis 3, again, individual sin becomes generational sin, becomes social. The royal representatives, as they're fractured, they fill and form the world in fractured ways. Now, we're not done yet because we're only in, in chapter uh, 6. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to zoom out here because I want to talk about 6 all the way through 11, and I want you to see something. There's a lot more going on there. I want you to see something in particular. What happens is Genesis 5 follows the line of Seth, the replacement son for Abel, because, you know, Cain out in the field. And so after uh, Seth's line comes all the way down, we get to one great, 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 great grandson named Noah. And he's called Noah because as his father says, for this one will Noah us. 
from the work and pain of our hands from the ground that the Lord has cursed. Noah's name means comfort or relief, consolation. The prayer of all of these generations later is maybe this will be the one that God will bring. He will crush the snake. He will bring us back to the garden. He will relieve this cursed earth. So how does this play out? What happens here? Now, here's the thing that you have to see, um, is the way that poetry works within scripture. Because what you're going to find is it's the same story playing out all over again. Like the chaotic waters of Genesis 1, right, was unformed and unfilled, and the waters were covering the face of the earth. What do we have in Genesis chapter 6? We have this flood that covers everything. The waters cover the face of the earth once again. We get a flood with the same language. And then out of that flood, we have like the Garden of Eden on top of a mountain. We have the ark resting on top of a mountain with all of the same animals that were talked about in Genesis 1. The ark is this little floating Garden of Eden with this new little, like, new, new step at, at new humanity, hopefully, where, like Adam, Noah is portrayed as God's chosen royal representative to kickstart this new movement. He's, it's kind of, the flood was kind of a, we're going to go back to the beginning. We're going to start it over. We're going to, humanity, you guys get a do-over, respawn, start the level again, and they go back. And, and they're given the same commandment, Noah, like Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, subdue, dominion. It's all right there. But like Adam and Eve's failure with the forbidden fruit, Noah fails with another forbidden fruit as he, as he gets plastered. He, he, pant, he plants a vineyard, he makes wine, and he gets absolutely plastered, and he passes out naked and ashamed in the living room, in the tent of, of you know, the home of the family. So what do you have? Forbidden fruit, naked and ashamed. Do you see the portrait of what we're bringing all this together? And like the generational sin and social fallout that led to then Cain, that then led to the city of Enoch, Noah's family moves through Canaan, it moves through Ham, it moves through Shem, all the way down to the city of Babel. Genesis 5 through 11 is Genesis 1 through 4 being played out with different characters, different situations, but the same result. Now, there's a lot going on, obviously, within the flood narrative. There's so much more going on there. But at the very least, it's communicating something about the human condition. You and I and all the generations before us, we are stuck in a cul-de-sac of our own sinful forming and filling. This narrative repeats itself. It's a, it, it's a, a, a repeated declaration that we find throughout Scripture that humanity, that you and I, we are sinners, not because of something that we become, but it is something that we're born into. It's an individual choice that we make. It's a generational inheritance that we have within our own structure of how we exist, and it's a society and system that we exist within, as Paul calls it, the powers and principalities of the earth, that there is a ruler at work behind the scenes of all the rulers of the earth. And so as we arrive to Genesis 11, and we've watched this story play out twice now, we ask the question, why justice? Why justice? Because sin has infected humanity. And it has caused a deep fracture within the image of God. That Every single human is still, yes, the image of God, but we are a funhouse mirror, a perverted and twisted version of it. This fractured image's fractured filling of um, forming and filling of this world that corrupts and fractures the world, filling the earth with generations of both good and bad, sometimes in the same person, forming the earth with great societies and cities, but also horrible injustices of uh, active deeds and even just inept misuse or, or lack of use. This morning I woke up and I uh, saw that what we had ha happened last night, all of these fireworks 
had led to a, uh, incre- a, a hazardous air quality. Where it's like, okay, we're not going outside today um, because of this air quality. And it's made, made me, I'm just thinking, these are the weird shower thoughts that your pastors have when they're getting ready to come to church. Is um, I was thinking about how humanity is a lot like fireworks. Um, that we are, um, you, if you've ever seen like a real well done fireworks show, it's incredible. Paired with music and uh, sometimes even like, like stage lighting and stuff like that, it all comes together. It's incredible. It can be emotional depending on the music that's worked. I mean, it is incredible when fireworks are used well and done right. And yet, fireworks are incredibly destructive. They, they burn my yard if I misuse them. They might burn my neighbor's yard. They might burn my neighbor's house down if I'm not using them well. And as we've seen, you get enough of people that aren't using them rightly and well, and it not just burns down a neighbor's house, it infects a whole city. Like the philosopher in Katy Perry wrote, baby, you're a firework. Humanity, I, this is just a silly an image of that humanity has the capacity and ability for incredible works of glory and beauty and power and emotional captivity. And yet, so often it's, it's misused and it's destructive. And in fact, more often than not, it is used that way. So what does this firework story, the image of God, bring out of us? The forming and filling that's been twisted. The narrative tension and problem of Genesis 1 through 11 is both a high and low view of humanity. We are incredible creatures, but we're so fragmented and broken and fallen and sinful, we simply cannot pull ourselves up. We cannot administer justice well enough to get back to the garden. The running refrain throughout the Old Testament is, you know what we need around here, down here on earth? We need a true image of God. A real royal representative who will trust God always in all of their forming and filling work, who through that work will crush the serpent like God promised in Genesis, and who will be like a true Noah who will bring comfort and relief for this cursed world. Someone to reconcile humanity to one another and to God. Someone who will revive and reform our dead and destructive humanity. Someone that will blow out the smoke that our poor firework handling has brought and heal the ways that we've blown off our thumbs and fingers and and teach us how to rightly use fireworks, how to use this incredible thing that is our humanity. Next week, as we move into the story of Abraham and Israel, the story continues as we begin to look at the what of justice. But as we close today, as many Christians... Many of us know where this story is going. This same pattern that we've watched play out with Adam and Noah is going to play out with Abraham, with Joseph, with David, with Mo. I mean, you just go down the list. Saul and all of the kings, it just keeps playing out. But there never seems to be that true image bearer who can do it. It keeps going down. And this great hope ends up being cycled onto this language they call the anointed one. This Messiah King, the promised snake crusher, the true image of God, the royal representative we've all been waiting for, a son of God, this is what everyone's waiting for. Someone to teach us how to use the fireworks of humanity, to clean the air and to heal our bodies. The prophets, the prophets even regularly declared the promises that God was making that in order for this to happen, it was not gonna be purely a human work. It had to come from outside the system. It had to come from God himself. The declaration that Jesus made of himself and all of the New Testament repeats again and again and again is that Jesus is that true image of God. Jesus is the one who being God himself is more than just the royal representative of God's presence and rule. He is the royal presence and rule of God in the flesh. Through his ministry on earth, he showed what just or right 
forming and forming of the world look like as he's healing the sick forgiving sin caring for the poor marginalized calling out individual sin the generational sin of israel and the systemic sins of israel that led to the oppression of the vulnerable jesus shows us what true forming looks like what it means to truly be the image of god through his death even more than that he he took on all of the just judgment that is required of the ways that we've mishandled and abused our own humanity and, and specifically took on the curse of all of that abuse, death itself. Through Jesus' resurrection, he becomes the firstborn of a new creation, a new humanity brought up out of the tomb, out of the earth, like Adam was brought out of the earth, brought out of the tomb like Noah was brought out of the ark. And there is a new day dawning, a new humanity at hand. And after that resurrection, Jesus, Matthew 28, gathers up his disciples, his new little humans, and he gives them this great commission to go into the world to be fruitful and multiply. And this is beyond just those guys marrying off and having children. It's an invitation for them to invite all of humanity to be adopted into this new humanity through the work of Jesus Christ by allowing Jesus to take the just judgment for the ways they've mishandled the image of God within them and to allow him to reform the image of God within them. All of this leads to that new humanity being conformed. The images change in the New Testament, no longer to just the image of God, but now the image of Christ. You see, everyone is the image of God. Christians alone, those who have come to Jesus in faith, we are now the image of Christ. We display Jesus' forming and filling work. We are the royal representatives of his rule and his presence here on earth as it is in heaven, who are forming and filling the world to the best of our ability in return in, in, in anticipation for his return and new creation. You see, we embark on the filling vocation of what you could call revival. We go into the world preaching the gospel, teaching of evangelism, of discipleship, calling for repentance and faith and obedience of all the nations. And also we're called to the forming vocation of not just revival, but also reform, where we're working to prevent restore, to care for the vulnerable, the oppressed, and the silenced, because we acknowledge that the implications of sin is not just on the individual human heart, but it's generational and it's social and systemic. And so for Jesus' reign to be displayed on earth as it is in heaven, then it must be not just revival, although that is a necessity as we see because humanity cannot do this on its own. But that doesn't mean that we're not called to engage with what's before us. So that's the why. The why of all justice is built on the image of God as shown in Jesus Christ and then for you and I today being made into the image of Christ. You see, justice is due to everyone because everyone is in the image of God. Justice is needed because of the unjust ways that humans have formed and filled the world. Justice is commanded of us because it is the heart and character of the God who reveals himself in that true image, Jesus Christ. And justice is expected of us because we are being made into the image of Jesus Christ. And so this is the why of justice. And this is what has to be the foundation as we move into the what and how in the coming weeks.